I encourage you to take out your Bible once again and open to the New Testament book of 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. And again, as I said in our opening, we are uh, taking a, a brief pause in our exposition of the book of Revelation and looking at the glory of Jesus uh, in the book of Revelation. And we're going to turn our attention to the book of First Peter, which is kind of the, the, the text from which our Bible conference that begins tonight um, is taken from. Particularly First Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And what I want to do this morning is just take a moment to familiarize ourselves with the text. I'm going to restrain from going into much depth with it because our earnest prayer has been that the depth will come from our, our expository preachers that we've got coming in over the course of the next few nights. So I'm, I'm trying to guard against going too much into what you're going to hear from them and they will do a much better job with it anyway than I would. But I do want us to, to be warmed up to the text um, as we, as we come together to it. So, 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, and if you're still trying to find it in your Bible, you can get to the book of Hebrews and keep going, James. Then we'll come 1 Peter. If you get to 2 Peter, you've gone too far. So you can backtrack. But 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I'll read through verse 12. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The title of the message this morning, and I intend it again just as an overview of 1 Peter, is this, Christ, the source of inexpressible Christian joy. Christ, the source of inexpressible Christian joy. It's important for us to understand that as Paul writes, or excuse me, as Peter writes this epistle to his Christian audience, they are not living the good life. Peter is writing to believers who are suffering intensely. In fact, when we get down into the text we just read, one of the things he talks about is they are going through grievous Trials. They are incredibly distressed. They are going through hardships and affliction. They are just like the, the Christians of the churches, uh, the seven churches in Asia Minor that we've been reading about in the book of Revelation. They too are dealing with temptation. They're dealing with uh, the world around them, the influence of Satan, their sin nature. The audience to whom Peter writes, uh, they are going through their own Struggles, sorrow grips their hearts, even at the moment that they're reading this. Their life is overcome by grief-inducing trials. And yet, Peter is able to speak about an inexpressible 
joy. And this morning, I think it's worth our time to consider broadly where true Christian joy comes from. And in this text, there are no less than five different sources of Christian joy. And, and they're all, if I can, I don't want to overstate this, we're going to start broadly and work our, in, our way into the specific source and origin of all of these sources of joy. So we're going to start broadly and work our way into the true source of Christian joy. But five sources of joy that Peter's drawing out for these struggling Christians, maybe just like us this morning. Maybe you're struggling and having some grief-inducing sorrow in your soul. And you've struggled to get out of bed and to come here and to worship God like David did with your whole heart. Well then... May God be pleased to help us to fight for joy by meditating upon these things. Number one, five sources of Christian joy. Number one, the new birth. The new birth. Christianity is not, fundamentally speaking, it is not an ethical system. Christianity is not a set of rules. Christianity is not an abstract morality. Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is not fundamentally a worldview. Christianity is not a religious code. Christianity is not a bunch of religious behaviors that you have to do in order to express your devotion to God. Now, let me pause there and say Christianity has a worldview. Christianity has a Christian ethic, but fundamentally at its core, Christianity is not defined by rules or the Christian ethic or religious duties and practices. In the Christian gospel, the fundamental movement of true religion, true Christianity, is not from us to God, us doing our duty for God, us doing going to church for God, us doing everything to please God. The fundamental movement of true religion is from God toward us. It's from God moving toward us. And this, Peter says, is the great joy. The great joy. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the exclamation point there? Blessed be Him. Why? Because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Do you see the difference there? Christianity is not fundamentally what we do for God. It is the movement of God toward us. And what Peter's talking about here is the new birth. Now births are a time of great rejoicing, aren't they? Everyone in this room, in, in some experience, knows the joy of, of, of hearing someone announce, someone you love, we're pregnant. And usually, usually people rush and they hug and they say, oh, that's so wonderful. And we know that beyond the birth announcement, when the news comes, it's a girl. Oh, the celebration. Or it's a boy. Oh, there's such joy in that. And then all the way up to that first moment when you go into the hospital and you, you're, maybe you're holding your own, you're holding a loved one's, maybe it's your, your, your child or your grandchild for the very first time. It's a joy that no other experience in life can match. Am I right? There is nothing like that. That birth is an amazing, joyful gift of God. Well, this birth that Peter's talking about right here is not a physical birth, but he's using that idea to help us to understand the joy of the new birth, a spiritual birth. One of the things we see in the Bible, whether we like hearing this or not, the Bible tells us that we are all, every one of us, myself included, from the moment of conception, meaning even when we're that little tiny Seed in our our mother's womb, we're a living creature, we are a person there, and we are also in that moment dead in sin and trespasses. 
that sweet little embryo is at enmity with God. We are by nature spiritually dead. David himself says, I was conceived in sin. It doesn't mean his mama did sin and, and now he's born. It meant from the moment of conception, my soul was at enmity with God. And that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, the effects of the fall when Adam and Eve sinned against God. It had implications in, upon all of us. We are all spiritually dead. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Listen, as a pastor, and I know all of us have experienced the death of a loved one, and we would love to see that person we love so dearly just move, breathe, get up, do something. They can't. The same is true for a spiritually dead person. One who is spiritually dead cannot do anything, can't believe, can't repent, can't look unto Jesus with the eyes of faith. No, a dead person in sin and trespasses can learn things about Jesus and even know things about Jesus and talk about Jesus. But I'm talking about looking with the eyes of faith. It can't be done. Why? The lights are off. We're spiritually dead. But Peter says here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Meaning that by the supernatural agency of the Father, through the work of the Son, through the application of it in the work of the Holy Spirit, He has broken down into our lives, into our spiritually dead hearts. And He has done surgery. He has done what we can't do. He has taken out that dead heart and he's put in a, a living heart. We call this regeneration. This is the new covenant. This is what we read about in Jeremiah. I will take out a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will give them a living heart. I'll take out that dead, stony heart that can't do anything. And I will give them a living heart. I will renovate them. I will make them new. And with that heart, the new birth, and with that new birth comes new life, new affections that we never had, new belief that we never thought possible, new eyes to see God in ways we never saw before, new eyes to see Christ through the lens of faith, new eyes to see ourselves through the new birth. We understand who we are for the first time in our lives. We see ourselves as the great enemy of God. And with that new heart comes the ability to repent and to believe. The book of Acts and the book of Ephesians tells us that both repentance and faith are, and I quote, gifts of God. Why does he have to give them to us? Because we can't do them on our own. And Peter here is saying, rejoice. Blessed be the God and Father because he has done a supernatural work in giving the new birth to you. And think about how wonderful this is. Think about with a physical birth. How much is determined by a physical birth? Right? When a baby is born, already so much is attributed to that baby. What I mean by that is, got parents. The baby didn't get to choose, right? You got parents. It's got new mommy, new daddy. May have new siblings, right? There's a brother that they may or may not want, right, Ryan? All right? When, when your baby brother's born, now you got you got a whole new family there the language that they'll speak, their citizenship, all of that is determined by their physical birth. Well, transfer those ideas to the spiritual birth. To be born again speaks to the fact that we now have a father. God. No longer our judge, but now our father. Through the new birth now, we have a, a brother. We have a sibling. And this is not like your little brother, your big brother, your little sister, your big... This is Jesus Christ, who is our elder brother, slash our king. That's an interesting dynamic. But he's our brother king. We have a new family. The family of Jesus Christ. We have a new language. Prior to the spiritual birth, we had a worldly language. 
probably most of us had a pretty colorful worldly language. But now, the language of Scripture is our language. We have a new citizenship. We belong no longer to the kingdom of this world. We belong now by grace through the new birth. We belong to the kingdom of God. All of this is attributed through the new birth. Oh, how much change is wrought in, in the soul of a believer and a life through the new birth. And how does this all come about? By the mercy of God. Him reaching down to us. And we must begin this morning, in this time, and as we prepare for the conference, and, and, and Dr. Snyder tonight will be preaching on this, the joy of believing. We must begin here by asking, have I been born again? Has God, by the Holy Spirit, invaded my heart? Taken out that heart of stone, that heart of rebellion, that heart of religion, that tries to make movement toward God. Lord, aren't you pleased with me? I did this, that, and the other. Believe me, you don't want to stand before God holding up. Here, God, here's my works. Here's my church attendance. Here's my morality. Here's my, my right and wrongs. You don't want to stand before a God who is holy, and perfect, and demands perfect, perfection from you. Have you been born again? The fact is, there is no joy. There can be no sustaining joy unless God brings life to our dead soul. And if you have been born again, we have to do exactly what Peter's doing here. You may be struggling just like these first century Christians were struggling. How am I to find joy in this? Remind ourselves of this glorious truth day after day after day after day, moment after moment. That it's not because you were a better person that God saved you, that you received God's mercy. For that matter, it's not because you were good at all. We were dead in trespasses and sins. The only explanation is the mercy of God. And oh, how that should make us glad. Oh, how that should, like an artesian well, bubble up joy in our soul, the mercy of God for one like me who did not deserve it, who didn't want it, who didn't ask for it. Oh, the mercy of God makes us glad. And just to stimulate further joy in that, if you didn't initiate it, then it doesn't fall on you to preserve it. The God who began this work in you will see it through to completion. Oh, the joy of the new birth from start to finish. This new birth is intended to be a source of much joy in our lives because of the mercy of God. Amen. The mercy of God someone like you and me. A second source of joy in the Christian life, we see it in verses 4 and 5, is an inheritance. An inheritance. Now let me frame this this way. Let's imagine, and for most of us this won't be hard to imagine, you're living in hardship. Every day's a grind. Every day's a struggle. Emotionally, mentally, physically, you're barely scraping by. You're trying to keep a smile on your face. You're trying to take care of what needs to be taken care of. But honestly, you're barely making it. Week after week. Month after month. Year after year. It's a grind. A constant struggle. And then let's say one day a lawyer just comes to your doorstep. They knock on the door. Mr. Regara? Ms. Lee? Ms. McGraw? I'm here to tell you that you are the beneficiary of a massive inheritance. You have a distant relative who's passed away and named you the beneficiary. I have never in my life transferred this sum of money to a beneficiary in all my life. 
In fact, it's so massive, it's, it's going to take some time. It's not going to, I, I don't have a check for you today. It's going to take some time to process and do some legal work, but in due time, you're going to receive a tremendous amount of money and your life will never be the same. And the lawyer leaves. You return back to the same way of life you've been living with for the past several days, weeks, months, years, barely scraping by. But let me ask you this. Is your perspective going to be different? Knowing that that inheritance, that massive sum is coming? Is that going to alter and change the way you live day out because you know a tremendous inheritance is coming? Will it make somehow, again, somehow make your struggles just a little bit easier to bear knowing that it's coming and it's going to make everything better? The weariness that you labor under is lighter because you know in a due amount of time everything's going to be changed and man, I'm not going to have to deal with this anymore. Right? Do you see the, the picture there? Do you feel the weight of that? That's exactly what Peter is doing here. This is what Peter is saying to Christians in the first century who are struggling and to you and I. Go back to verse 4. I'll go back to verse 3. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, this inheritance is, is an artesian well of joy that bubbles up. That what, what does he say here? Even now, if for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by, by, by various trials. If now for a little while you're still having to face some trials, you know this inheritance by God's mercy is coming. And the promise of that inheritance keeps supplying joy, grace, mercy, joy inexpressible and full of glory because though right now, you're right, it is hard, I'm grinding, I'm barely getting by. But everything's going to change soon. One day, everything will, will, I'll receive this glorious inheritance and there will be no more grinding. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more hardship. And Peter is driving this home. Remember your inheritance. This is a source of joy for you. And in fact, the text demonstrates for us that Peter is so profoundly convinced that our eternal inheritance in Christ is so such a source of joy for us that he does something very unique in this text. And our English Bible does not pick it up. What do we do when we want to remember something important? We memorize it, right? We, we'll post it on a postcard or, or so, we'll, we'll do something to try to keep it in front of us. Sometimes we use something called a mnemonic device, right? Some of us, we, we teach our children to help them memorize. We give them little things to help them memorize things, a mnemonic device. So important is this truth about our inheritance that that's exactly what Peter does here. Now again, our English Bible doesn't pick it up. What it says in English is this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But in Greek, Peter alliterates. Those three words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, he uses three Greek words that all start with the Greek letter alpha. They all end with the Greek letter nu. And when you pronounce them, they all sound very similar. That's not coincidence. For those first century readers reading in Greek, he has specifically put into the text a device. Listen, you're struggling. You're going through hardship. This lawyer, Christ, has brought an inheritance to you. It's, it's going to change everything. Cling to this inheritance. And in fact, the three words he uses are athsarton. Amianton, Amaranton. You see how they all sound very similar. They all start with the same Greek letter and they all end with the Greek letter. And they all describe this inheritance. He's, he's giving them a mnemonic device to fight for joy in the midst of the daily grind. Translated into English, those words are unperishable. Imperishable is the proper English, but unperishable. The Greek letter alpha adds a, a knot to it. It's unperishable. 
It's undefiled. It's unfading. Peter's like that lawyer who wants us to understand the value of this inheritance. And so he does so by telling us what it's not like. He says it's, it's not like that banana that sits on your counter in your kitchen, and over the couple of days it turns black and it deteriorates, and it's all black and gross and you can't eat it. This inheritance, it's not like that. It's unperishable, imperishable. And then he goes on to say, this inheritance that's yours by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, it's not like polluted pond water, right? If you're thirsty, you don't want to drink that polluted pond water. It's, it's, it's got impurities in it. It's defiled. But this inheritance, it's not like that. It's undefiled. And this inheritance, you know that chair you've got in your living room that sits by the window and every afternoon the, the sun comes bearing down on it and after years and years and years of that, it's faded, Right? Maybe, maybe part of it's still the same original color, but the part that gets the sun, it's faded. This inheritance, it's not like that chair. It's not like that banana. It's not like that pond, polluted pond water. It's not like that fading chair. This inheritance is unfading. It's permanent. It's pure. It's perfect. And it doesn't even stop there. He goes on to say, and it's safe. It's kept in heaven for you. And there's nothing safe down here. You can put your most valued possession in a safety security box, and it's still not safe. There is, but this is protected. It's kept in heaven for you. We're neither thieves, nor terrorists, nor fire, nor earthquake, nor the wrath of God coming down upon the world. Nothing can touch it. And what is this inheritance he speaks of? It's a salvation ready to be revealed on that last day. This is the inheritance. Your salvation. Ready to be revealed on the last day. Do you know what, notice the forward-looking aspect of this? A lot of times we look upon our salvation backwards. And that's, that's not wrong. Paul does that in Ephesians. We look backwards upon God's mercy and grace in days gone by and previous. But sometimes we forget the future look of salvation. And what Peter's simply pointing out here is as wonderful as your salvation is here and now, you haven't got it all yet. You haven't got the best of it yet. Now you only have a piece of it. Now we come and we worship a king who we're going to see in verses 8 and 9. Though you love him, you can't see him. Though you treasure him supremely and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, Never looked into Jesus' face. But that salvation in the last time, the one that you love and you're here wholeheartedly worshiping Him, you'll receive the fullness of that salvation. On that last day, when this age comes to a close, right? think book of Revelation where we've been. In final judgment, when holy Christ on His throne comes down to judge the living and the dead, on that day when He is pouring out His wrath, and on that day when every individual is crying out for the mountains to fall upon them, that they might not have to stand face to face before this King. And everyone's trying to find a place to hide because of the rebellion against God and His wrath burning hot against them. You, Peter says, will be saved. You will be delivered. You will be rescued on that day. You will be in that moment brought into, not the wrath of God, the unending fellowship with Jesus Christ for all eternity that you've been having a foretaste of here in this life, but the fullness of it will be yours. Oh, the mercy of God. Peter is upholding our inheritance as a, a joy factory. And beloved, if, listen, I'm right there with you in the fight. I understand the struggle. But if even as, as Peter is unfolding, if it's not welling up that artesian well, then there's a hardness of heart going on right now. It's, it's a problem. Peter is upholding. This is where inexpressible joy is found. The new birth, our inheritance, number three. A very strange source of joy and one that may even... When you hear it, frustrates you a little bit if you're in this this morning. Your trials. Your trials. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, 
though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't have to tell you trials are hard, they're painful. The text here says they're grievous, they're distressing. And if you're like most people, when you go through trials, immediately you begin to ask questions like, God, where were you on this? Why God? Why would you do this to me or to my loved one or take this away from me or not give me this? God, what happened? When cancer hits, God, where were you? During depression, in unemployment, when you're facing pressure to compromise your values because of the world around you, your family, in a classroom when you're being laughed at. Where, God, where are you? It's a normal question to ask. Peter answers, he anticipates. And he says, let me answer that for you. I know you're asking the question, so let me answer for you so you know clearly. In your battle, in your trial, let me position Christ in His proper place for you. These trials, they did not come about by fate. These trials did not sneak in while God was taking a nap. No, he tells us, God designed these trials to test us to prove the genuineness of our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. To expose and to test us, to say, what do we really believe about who God is and about the beauty, the majesty, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? And somehow, in the mystery of God. God wills these trials into our lives without being responsible for doing evil or creating cancer or motivating terrorists. God wills it sovereignly, the text says, and if you highlight in your Bible, if you circle in your Bible, I highly recommend doing it there in verse 7. So that. Verse 6, we all go through grievous, various grievous trials. Verse 7, so that. What that means is, in everything you're going through this morning, this past week, this past year, everything you're going to go, there is a so that in every one of the trials. And it's so that something even more precious than gold will be produced in your life. Oh, that God would give us hearts to believe. There is a so that something more valuable than gold will be produced in your life. On that last day, when you've inherited that inheritance. The trials will end. The suffering will end. The tears will end. Why? They've served their purpose. Their purpose is to strengthen our faith, to grow our faith, to expose our faith, to reveal our faith, to reveal our lack of faith into which we must repent and turn to Christ. When we reach the end, there's no more need. The so that for the trials is done up. We receive the inheritance. But for now, the various trials are a cause of joy because they expose where our hearts really are with Jesus. How it is between our souls and Jesus Christ. Now, I don't consider that I've suffered much in my life. I've, for 14 years, though, I've watched many of you suffer. Some of you have been sinned against in grievous ways. Some of you have endured chronic illness and pain in ways I can't imagine, though I often try to, just to try to empathize. But I can't. I can't. Some have struggled financially. And you just can't get out of that pit. Some of you have watched with broken hearts as children or grandchildren or extended family and friends have given themselves over to the destructive power of sin and have, have walked away from the faith, walked away from Christ and gone their own way. 
Peter's point here is not to minimize our suffering, but Paul's, Peter's point here is that these trials are preparing us for something. There's a so that in every one of these things that we go through. And it's so that when our king returns, we will receive the inheritance that is ours. What Peter here, he's not trying to make light of your your pain this morning or your suffering or your hardship. He is trying to bring a biblical perspective to it. It's kind of like we were talking this past Wednesday night in our Looking Unto Jesus study. Some of us are reading through Isaac Ambrose's book, Looking Unto Jesus, and Jesus as he goes through that sham of a court system and he's put to death and he takes the beatings and the brunt of the punishment and, I mean, he's just, he's tortured even in ways beyond the biblical text, goes on to explain. It is a horrific treatment that Christ receives. There, the creator of the universe has the power to just wave his arms and they fall down dead. Just think they're dead and they drop down dead, yet he doesn't. He doesn't. He takes it. He takes the suffering. He takes the trials. He takes the affliction. How? Was the question we were wrestling with. How? And the answer, one of our ladies gave a beautiful answer because he had a biblical perspective. He understood that the suffering he was going through was a means to a greater end. He knew God's purposes. He knew what God was accomplishing through that. And that biblical view of how this suffering is a means to an end, the author of Hebrews writes that for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame for the inexpressible joy. And that's what Peter's doing here in our own soul. He's saying, listen, this life will beat you black and blue. You got the enemy, you got your sin nature, the world around us. But the trials are a joy because embedded in them is a so that. God is using them to bring about something even more valuable than gold. Your maturity to receive Christ when He returns. Do you see that? There is a fourth, fourth sequentially, but here I told you at the beginning, we're, we're starting broadly and moving in, and here we move to the centerpiece of it all. So fourth in our sequence of causes of joy, but I would uphold this as number one, the fundamental and ultimate source of joy in the Christian's life. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is expressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Who's He talking about here? Well, if you go back up to verse 1, and if you just allow your eyes to scan verse 1 all the way down, just through verse 9, you will find the name of Jesus Christ on almost every single line. Peter cannot write without speaking of Christ, the one that he loves. So when we come down to verse 8, who's he talking? He's talking about Christ, the one he's been talking about. So here, the fourth but most fundamental source of joy in the Christian's life is Jesus Christ. And oh, I'm so tempted. I have been tempted to kind of, I want to dive into that so deeply, but we pray that's what the conference is. But I'll just simply draw your attention to the centrality of Christ for the Christian's inexpressible joy. And here we're reminded of something that maybe you need to be reminded of, I need to be reminded of. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Friends, that means... We are some strange people. I mean, you think about that. We are strange. There was a movie in the 1950s starring Jimmy Stewart. Any of you know where I'm going? He had a friend, about six foot eight, actually watched an interview with Jimmy Stewart on YouTube about this. And he, he was talking about his description of his best friend, six foot eight. But nobody else could see this friend. You know who his friend was? Anyone know his name? 
Harvey, I heard it. And what was Harvey? A rabbit. A six foot eight invisible rabbit. And it was so funny to watch Jimmy Stewart. Just, I mean, he was elderly on the Johnny Carson show kind of talking about this. The problem was, in the movie, Stewart's character is the only one who can see this. Invisible bunny rabbit, his best friend. And so you can imagine, it's no wonder all his friends and family want to think he's wacky, think he's crazy, think he belongs in an asylum. We are Jimmy Stewart. Do you not understand that your relatives, your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with, non-Christians you hang out with, they look at you and I and think similar thoughts about us. We have changed by God's mercy, not no credit to us, by God's mercy through the new birth. We have changed our lives radically based upon a person we've never seen and that they can't see. And we give large sums of money to promote him, somebody that can't be seen. We spend an inordinate amount of times loving this person and studying this person and thinking about this person, but you've never seen him, and I haven't either. We read about his death, and we get teary-eyed. We get emotional about a man's death we've never seen. And yet, as Peter says, but you love him. You believe in him. You rejoice in him with joy that's inexpressible. I've referenced this verse countless times, and it's probably, I guess, my whole purpose in ministry. That is the Christian life. Love for Jesus. Love for Jesus. Christ, though we've never seen him, he's enchanting to us. He's fascinating to us. Our hearts are magnetically drawn to Him. He's alluring to us. In Matthew 12, 42, Jesus Himself talks about how the Queen of the South, this is an Old Testament story, how the Queen of the South will rise up in judgment against this generation, this generation between Christ's first advent and His second advent. Because the Queen of the South in the Old Testament, you remember, she, wealthy woman, made tremendous arrangements to travel to see Solomon and all of his wisdom and all of his glory to bring him presence. And when she got there and she saw all that Solomon possessed and all that he was and she heard his wisdom, her response to him was, she was speechless. There were no words. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 42, something better than Solomon is here. If we're speechless at the wonder of King Solomon, and we don't, we're not speechless at the glory, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, woe is you. The Christian life is Jesus Christ. At the center of all this is a person. It's Jesus Christ. That's where joy is found. Joy is person-oriented. It's not, let me muster up my strength. I'm, I'm going to fight today. I'm just going to be happy today. There is no sustaining joy apart from love for Jesus. And oh, how I pray that will be driven home this week in various ways. And how do we see Jesus? We'll close with this in verses 10 through 12. I won't take the time to read it. Our fifth source of joy, again, Christ is the most fundamental, but the fifth one is the Scripture. Our source of joy is Scripture. And again, Christ is the center of it all. The Scripture that's being talked about in verses 10 through 12 is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a source of joy. Did you know that? How many of you revel in the Old Testament? Uh, I mean that sincerely. It tends to be one of a couple things. Many Christians enjoy spending time on the Word, but not the Old Testament. We just kind of focus on the New Testament. 
And then on the other hand, you've got other people who get hung up on the Old Testament, and they study every detail of Old Testament law and, and, and Old Testament principles, and they try to treat the New Covenant Christians as though we're Old Covenant Christians. And again, it's just uh, an abuse of the Old Testament. So we've got these two extremes here. Either way, both groups tend to misunderstand what the Old Testament's all about. So what was it all about? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection when the two, two disciples are walking through and he opens up Scripture, the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. He opens up the Old Testament and he shows them, and I quote, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's the story of Christ. The story sets up in Genesis 3.15 after Satan deceived Adam and Eve and the world was plunged into sin. God cursed Adam and Eve and the serpent, but He made a promise. A Messiah is coming. I'm the one who's going to come and overturn. And this Messiah, He will be bruised. He will be beaten. He, his head, I mean, he, he will endure hardship. But He will crush the head of Satan. In other words, Jesus would come, He would live, He would be crucified, He would rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father. He would conquer Satan. So from Genesis 3.15, first book of the Bible on, the rest of the Bible story, the rest of it is about fulfilling that promise, how Jesus fulfills that promise. And seeing that big picture really is the key to understanding the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament we see the story of redemption in every detail. The Old Testament is a shadow of the coming Christ. The New Testament is the substance of it. It's all the same story. Those long lists of genealogies in the Old Testament, when you understand them according to this, the Messiah's coming, now all of a sudden every one of those names are important. Previously they were irrelevant. Previously I couldn't pronounce them. Previously I didn't know why they were there. But when I put it in light of the coming Messiah, I say, oh, every one is essential. Because without them, the line, the seed of the woman who's going to come is cut off. Every one of them is essential. So they, they come alive with anticipation. Every name is a reminder God has not forgotten. Every name is a reminder God is faithful to His promise. Every name is a reminder Satan will die. Sin will die. Suffering will be no more. Christ Jesus will win. Do you see how the Old Testament is a source of joy? Scripture is a source of joy. It's laying the foundation. Every victory we see in the Old Testament is a picture, is a, an artesian well of joy saying, oh, that's just a shadow of what Christ is going to do. When David kills Goliath, it's a small picture, a small reminder of Jesus' victory over sin, over Satan, over death. Every sinful failure on Israel's part, David's sin against Bathsheba shows a desperate need for Christ. The, the imagery in the Old Testament, the Passover, the, 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 the brazen serpent, all of them are picturing Christ. The role of priests in the Old Testament portray the coming work of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Every sacrifice that was burnt on the altar is a, is a picture of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. All of the Old Testament, every event, every title, every prophecy, every victory, every name, every law is a glimpse of Christ. They may not all point to Christ in the same way, but my goodness, they all point to Jesus Christ. And Peter here, to his first century audience, says, it's a source of joy in your daily battle. Listen, my purpose this morning is more or less to introduce the text from which our conference begins tonight. Joy inexpressible. Let me leave you with this. Joy is not a spiritual discipline. Joy is not something you can get up in the morning and strategize on pen and paper. Here's what I'm going to do today to live a life of joy today. I often struggle with, and I know many of you do as well, struggle with that command in Scripture to rejoice and the reality that life in this world is hard. Sometimes I get asked, why do you portray the Christian life as though it's, it's ugly and bad and horrible? It's a life of joy, to which I say, amen. But is that your experience? If you could interview the seven churches of, of Asia Minor, would they say it's a joy? As I sit in your hospital rooms, 
uh, with Miss Angie. I promise you she would not have told me last week. All oh, the Christian life is a life of joy. It doesn't mean that it's not. It just means that it is a battle to get there. It is a fight to get there. Joy is not a decision, a product of your willpower to say, I'm going to do it today. Nor is joy the product of attending a Bible conference on joy inexpressible. Joy is person-oriented. Joy is the product of locking your radar on a person. Locking your eyes, not on their circumstances, not upon your struggles, but on a person. And when that person is in view, Jesus Christ, when your eyes are locked on Him with faith, joy inexpressible emerges. Joy inexpressible supernaturally erupts. Joy is a grace of God. Are we commanded in Scripture to rejoice? Yes. But keep in mind, the way we obey that is not, okay, I'm going to do it today. It is the Gospel, looking to Jesus. You obey that command by locking your radar upon Jesus Christ, upon the new birth, upon the inheritance that's yours in Jesus Christ, upon the so that that is accomplished by Jesus Christ in your trials, upon the person of Jesus Christ, upon the work of Jesus Christ, upon the kingship of Jesus Christ, and as Jesus Christ is revealed in Scripture. And Jesus produces by grace, even in the midst of trial. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That joy erupts. My question for you, as it is for me this morning, is that who you are right now? If not, may I submit to you, we're not locked into Christ the way that we must be. We're not gazing upon Him with both eyes. Maybe you've got one eye on him, but you still got one eye on everything down here, all your responsibilities. Lock both eyes upon Christ. And as we do that day after day after day, inexpressible joy erupts by grace in the Christian's life.